This is Shine On, the health and happiness show with Casey, an Ella's Leash production. Shine On is a weekly presentation with guests, ideas, information, and fun designed to improve your life from 100.7 WHUD. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, and thank you for shining on today. Do you want to have the perfect holiday? Oh, be kind to yourself and replace being perfect with being present. Perfectionism takes you out of being present to what's really going on in your life. When we're present, we're not worrying about what we haven't finished. We're not thinking about what we didn't do right yesterday. We're just dealing with what's right in front of us. And even if what's right in front of us isn't easy, we're still focused and present to it. So it doesn't build up that layer of feeling like we're inadequate. That's author and creative counselor Kathleen O'Connor, who will guide us through the holidays as we release the urge to be perfect. You may, however, be super normal. Meg J, PhD, has over 9 million hits on her last TED Talk YouTube. Her new book looks at people who, like Oprah, LeBron, Jay-Z, Barack, and even Andy Warhol and Johnny Cash, rose above stressful and difficult childhoods to create wonderful lives for themselves. If you know someone struggling right now, listen in and learn how just a little bit of love from you can change their lives. Meg J tells us the untold story of adversity and resilience in the book, Supernormal. I am using the word supernormal as a stand-in for the word resilient, so I'm referring to resilient people. And who are these supernormal, resilient people that you profile? Well, they are everyday people, so the word supernormal means above the normal or average, and that's what resilient people are. They have better than average outcomes after adversity, so these are people who grew up with hard times, but who managed to grow up as adults and have uh, better lives as adults than they had as kids. What do they have in common? Oh, well, there are many roads to Rome. There are many roads to resilience, fortunately, but many of them, so often when we hear people talk about resilience, they say things like resilient people bounce back or they rebound. That's actually not how resilience works at all. Most resilient people will say that they are fighters. They'll say, I'm a survivor. I wasn't going to let this defeat me. So they tend to be very active problem solvers, and they often are people who, when they were young, made up their minds that they weren't going to be defeated or defined by the traumas or the adversities in their lives. Wow. I want to meet some of these people. I'm sure you know many of them. So 75% of people grow up with some significant adversity, which means that resilient people are all around us hiding in plain sight as doctors, teachers, lawyers, artists, entrepreneurs, maybe journalists. um, They're everywhere. And your next book is going to be about the 25% who had a really easy life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I haven't actually met those people yet, but I hear they're out there. Okay. Now tell me about the neuroscience that you weave into this book. Well, it's all over the place, but we talk about both their neuroscience of adversity, which is that when most of the adversities that kids live with are not one-time events, they're chronic stressors. So having an alcoholic parent or having a troubled sibling or living around the block from a neighborhood bully, these are not situations you face just once. They're 
situations you face again and again, sometimes day after day, year after year. So what that means is that millions of children and teens are living with chronic stress. They are living in a low level of fight or flight, which makes us overexposed to our own stress hormones and puts us at risk for some negative outcomes from school failure to underemployment, chronic disease, mental health problems, substance abuse, even early death. So that doesn't sound good, but the good news is, is that just like negative experiences with people stress our brains and our bodies, positive experiences with people calm us down, that there is a scientific basis to the the notion that love heals, that good experiences with people reverse the effects of chronic stress. They quiet the brain and the body, and they allow us to heal from the traumas or the adversities that we've lived through before. They take our bodies out of fight or flight. All right. And you say love may be the strongest superpower of all. Why is that? Well, for the reason I just said, that, you know, our not-so-great experiences with people truly have a negative impact on our brains and our bodies, and nothing has the ability to roll that back or to undo that as much as loving, caring, positive experiences with other people. And the good news is, is that the brain does not know the difference between one sort of love and another sort of love, so that love and care can come from a friend, a teacher, a partner, a family member, um, a stranger, that really it's just these positive experiences with other people, these loving moments that we have that have the ability to heal the trauma that's come before, unlike anything else. So in your book, Supernormal, do you find that the people who had these difficulties also had a tremendous love power in their life that helped them overcome it? I find that they have it, but it's it can be a struggle. And so that, for many people, is often the last area where they struggle. That's often the reason people come to my office, that maybe they've grown up with hard times, but they figured out how to be successful in school or how to be successful at work or how to be successful socially. But often they come to my office because they say they're afraid of people really knowing them or getting close to people. You know, they're afraid to love and be loved. And even though it does tend to be where most of the healing comes, from. For many, it's the last battle. Um, and it can be the most difficult place to be brave, but that's where, you know, the repair really comes from. Meg J, PhD, your, your TED YouTube has more than 9 million views. What is the message that attracts 9 million people to your YouTube video? My TED Talk was from my last book, so my previous book was called The Defining Decade, and it's about the developmental importance of your 20s, and so the TED Talk was called Why 30 is Not the New 20, and it was all about how that your 20s are a time of enormous uncertainty. It's it's not fun for a lot of people, but it's also a time of incredible potential in terms of pivotal moments with career and with identity, with yourself and with your relationship. And so the, the message is one of urgency and inspiration, I hope. And um, yes, it attracted a lot of attention. Oh, that's good. Good for you. All right. What is the best advice you could give our listeners this morning? Um, to realize, well, they could go read my book and to realize that they're not, <laughs> I wrote it to help people, so I would like for people to feel helped by it, um, but to realize that they're not alone, that the arc of a life bends toward goodness, 
and that usually that will involve letting the good people out there change life for the better one one moment, one day at a time. Meg J, J-A-Y. The book is super normal, and if you would like to be entered in a drawing to win a copy, send me an email from the website casey.co, K-A-C-E-Y dot C-O, and leave your address too so you can be put in the random drawing. Hi, it's Casey. Thanks for shining on today. I read a great article recently by author and writing coach Kathleen O'Connor. It was about how trying to be perfect can steal our joy and take us off our path. So I called and asked what inspired those thoughts. One of the things I was doing in November is I was participating in National Novel Writing Month. National Novel Writing Month is a, a nonprofit, but every November they encourage writers to get their novel done during the month of November to write. 50,000 words and you have little grids where you can put the number of words you wrote every day. They'll tell you how many you have to write and then you can get a t-shirt at the end if you've written that many words and then you can upload your novel and you can connect with other writers. So it was on that website as I was doing that that I was talking to a couple of other writers and they were talking about you know, I don't expect my book won't be that different than anybody else's. Somebody's probably already said what I have to say. And, and that's where I got the idea. So many times we shut down our creativity because we think life's one big competition. And creativity especially, to me, should always be viewed as there is no competition because it's your original, unique expression, whatever that is. Right. Just listening to you talk about going onto a website and 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 having to write every day and then upload it at the end, I got a knot in my stomach. Like I would just give up before I even started. So yes. I, I think I need this article. So you say if you struggle with perfectionism, then you struggle with forever feeling that you are not good enough. I think that seems to be right. epidemic, and not just with women. I think with all people. What do you say? Well, I I do think it's with uh, most people, but I think women uh, more so perhaps than men. And uh, and I think that's because as women, uh, for most of us, depending on um, our age and, and our, you know, the culture at the time we were raised, felt and continue to feel more responsible than other people to take care of everyone else's emotional well-being. And so that sort of drives this need to really always be on the alert and always be making sure you're doing everything right. And whether it's a mother with children who's struggling with needing to be the perfect mother, or it's in the workplace, you know, needing to do the very best and and worrying about how that's coming across. I do think it's more of an issue for women. I never do enough, you know, I'm not doing enough. When the truth is, for the most part, women are the great exhausted lump of society. (laughs) We're just exhausted all the time because we're doing way too much and trying to do it all like really, really, really well. And I think of the young moms who now have the Facebook pictures to compare their lives with. Yes, and, yes. And never feeling like they're measuring up. So how do we kind of back away from perfectionism? To me, 
see uh, perfectionism takes you out of being present to what's really going on in your life. When we're present, when we're in the now, as, as Eckhart Tolle would have, would have called it, everything is always fine in a certain sense, because when we're really present, we're not worrying about what we haven't finished, we're not thinking about what we didn't do right yesterday, we're just dealing with what's right in front of us. And even if what's right in front of us isn't easy, we're still focused and present to it. So it doesn't build up that layer of feeling like we're inadequate. We're just doing what we have to do in the moment. So when we're focused, so focused on this idea of competition and needing to be the best, you know, we're stuck in, in our heads in a future that may never occur or hasn't happened. And we're not enjoying just being present and just doing whatever's right in front of us, whether that's giving the kids a bath before you go to bed or reading a story or relaxing or watching some mindless reality show if you enjoy that, whatever it is. Or So I think that's the answer is things like meditation, activities, that bring us into the present. And the other part of it is to change, to reframe the thought process around being the best or having to be perfect or doing the best, to instead just give your best in whatever it is you're doing. Right. So if you reframe that as, you know, I'm giving the best I can at the moment, then it's it's going to be fine. It's always going to be enough. It's always going to be, as I like to say, the exact right amount of enough. The exact (laughs) right amount of enough. Write that down. It's a Kathleen O'Connor quote. Now, (laughs) as we move along, you say, too, if making a mistake leaves you feeling shamed or less than, then you've forgotten what it means to be human. I suffer from this. I have, like, flashbacks in the middle of the night of things I did 25 years ago that I'm still upset with myself for. That is certainly a very human condition, I think, for men and women. And a lot of it has to do with how mistakes or misbehavior was handled when we were children, you know, how our families responded to things, because shame is that feeling that it's not that I made a mistake, but I am the mistake. That's what that feeling of shame is. If we grew up in families like I did with an alcoholic family, you know, we embody that sense of it's not that I did something wrong. I must be wrong. There must be something wrong with me. So then when you make a mistake, you get that horrible feeling of, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Now it's revealed to the world that there's something wrong with me. So as we heal from that, and I mean healing, you know, takes whatever form we choose to work with, whether it's spirituality or working with a counselor or whatever it is. As we heal from that, and we still have this little echo of, you know, I don't want to make a mistake, we can start to get back into this idea that life is like being in a lab, you know, it's an experiment. It's trying different things, learning what we're good at, learning what we're not good at, and being okay with that. And when we do make a mistake, just as you would if you had a best friend that screwed up, you would probably say to that best friend, oh, it's fine, don't worry about it, it's fine. We have to learn to say that to ourselves. And again, if we're present in the moment, we can catch ourselves calling ourselves, you know, oh, you jerk or whatever, and and, yes. and come back around to the present moment. All right, making a mistake just means you're human. And you, you touched on this earlier, but I just want to go back to it. Think about giving your best rather than being your best. That, right. I think I would like to see that, you know, cross-stitched and hung in the kitchen. <laughs> yes, yes. Give your best. Forget being your best. 
Yeah, because giving your best just means you're bringing all that you are in the moment to whatever it is you're doing. If that's playing with your friends uh, or you're at work, your talents and gifts shine when you give your best and you get a sense of satisfaction when you do that. If you allow yourself to that be the, the rule, the ruler, rather than I have to be the best, then you can really feel satisfaction and accomplishment. And like when I was doing the novel, I didn't finish my novel. I didn't get to the 50,000 words. But I'm so excited about how much I did get done. You know, and every time I sat down and I wrote as part of that, I was like, that's great. You know, I felt really good about that, even though I didn't meet their goal at the end of the process. Are you going to try it again next November? Well, I hope that this novel, the one I was doing, I'll get finished before next November. <laughs> 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 but I'm sure I'll have another idea for another one for next November. Yeah, I would do it again because it was a great way just to keep me moving. Well, just give it your best. That's what I would say, Kathleen. <laughs> Now, along with being a writer, you also coach writers, and um, I bet you would be very encouraging, a fantastic writing coach. I am very encouraging because a lot of writers, like a lot of creative people, get stuck worrying about, you know, what's the outcome of what I'm working on? Is it going to be published or how would I self-publish it or, you know, can I market? And when we when we start thinking about that outcome, just like in other areas of life, it stops us from just doing what's in front of us. And I always say to them, if you're a writer, you write. Writers write. So forget about where it's going for the moment, other than if you're laying out a story. You have to know where it's going. And and just write. Don't worry too much yet about how it's going to be received. You know, that's not your job as a writer. Your job is to self-express, basically. So I am very encouraging. And then uh, I help people with all aspects of their writing, whether it's editing or self-publishing or helping them with the layout of a book. I'm doing a layout right now. Um, and it's fun because I love working with other writers and other creative people. And where can we go to find more about you? You can go to my website, KathleenO'Connor.com. Hi, it's Casey. Shining on into the new year. We have our first one-day shine-on retreat on January 13th. It's a Saturday in Croton with breathwork expert Kathleen Booker. She is going to teach us how to use our breath as tools for health and well-being. Then the first weekend in March, we're going to unplug for the whole weekend at the Mariondale Retreat Center in Ossining and meet all kinds of healers and do really fun things like send our dreams out into the universe via floating lanterns in the dark. Get all the details at Casey.co. Coming up, how to find peace in nature, even in the dark of winter with Jan Johnson. First, I want you to meet Dana Reed, a cardiac nurse and competitive cook in northern New Jersey. He's been with Operation Barbecue Relief since 2012 and is now chief volunteer officer for that organization. OBR brings hot meals all over the nation in times of need. Stan Hayes created Operation Barbecue Relief, and maybe you've heard of him. He was one of the top 10 finalists in Hero of the Year on CNN recently. You may have seen him on TV. Well, his colleague Dana is here now to share the story of Operation Barbecue Relief. We are a uh, 501c3. We started back in 2011. Um, we started out primarily as a um, manned or volunteered by competition barbecue cooks, uh, pitmasters. And back in 2011, Stan Hayes and Will Cleaver, our co-founder, pulled out some of their equipment that they normally cook on at competitions and started feeding for the victims that were affected by the Joplin tornadoes. And then from there, uh, the need just 
you know, it was a grassroots, and it just snowballed into a uh, to what we are today, six years later, and over 6,000 volunteers and 1.7 million meals served after disasters. Wow. Yeah, so we've really, we've really come a long way, and, you know, uh, for, for, for this nonprofit. It's amazing. So so when there's a disaster and, and you travel pretty much all around the United States, right? We are a national organization. Uh, we have equipment, smokers, uh, trailers that were um, that, that, that we got over the years is from help from our, our national sponsors. But yeah, we're a national organization and we'll show up within hours and a day of a, of a disaster uh, such as uh, Harvey, Irma, the wildfires in North California. And we'll start cooking a hot meal so you know people their priority is to make sure their families are safe and that their personal belongings are secured and they don't think about a hot meal until we show up and we start cooking and it's one less thing they have to think about well where do you get we, the, we never say no <laughs> where do you get the food so we have um, our national uh, our partners uh, seaboard will show up with uh, trailers of donated product primarily frozen uh, protein uh, we have large capacity smoke from Old Hickory, who's one of our sponsors, and then our volunteers will will load them up 24-7 and smoke, serve, repeat. (laughs) Now, you're a nurse practitioner. How do you drop everything and run off to where the disaster is to barbecue? So I'm the uh, chief uh, volunteer officer, though a lot of, you know... um, it takes it takes a whole team and a lot of work to do these deployments. Um, if there is a hundred volunteers on the ground, there's probably 25 of us behind the scenes that aren't on the ground, but making sure that all the product and volunteers and and the needs are met. It's easy for me to work behind the scenes on the phone, and on the rare occasion that a disaster occurs where I can take off, then I will certainly go, such as um, Hurricane Harvey. So I do a lot of behind the scenes along with the executive team to make sure that our volunteers and coordinators have everything they need. Mm -hmm. Um, to do this 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 work do you need to call the community and say hey we're operation barbecue relief we're coming you know it's that's a good question we do we try to use our volunteers that are closest to the disaster to try to scout out a place Um, because of the sheer size of our equipment and the sheer size of a deployment we want to make sure that we have everything um, in place such as you know running water food safety you know we don't want to show up and with a good deed and and not have the food safety and the uh, volunteer safety to do it right so right. we will use local resources we will call a community see if there is a need and then we will start mobilizing our equipment what's nice about OBR is we're a non-governmental organization we're not bound by contracts and we're not bound by other organizations so that gives us the flexibility of being able to if we honestly wholeheartedly feel that there is a need based on our experience we're going to roll we're going to go and we're going to figure it out and get that hot meal out there wow operation barbecue relief i think this is brilliant so you know do you pop up a tent next to the red cross or something like that If we have to, right. we work. You know, we do work very closely with the Salvation Army. Uh, we pr- help them provide meals. You know, we're all there for you know the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, faith-based groups, Operation Barbecue Relief. We're all there for the the better good. We're all there to do one thing and to help those affected by disasters. So if that means setting up a tent next to the Red Cross, we're going to set up a tent to the next, you know, the Red Cross, and you know, we'll get the job done at the end of the day. Yeah, and I bet the first thing people notice is how good it smells. Yes. 
smoke does carry. Um, if people don't know we're there the first day, they certainly will be there the second day. <laughs> and what kind of reaction do you get from people? Uh, really good. It's, you know, we talk about volunteering and, you know, what we get from volunteering. And, you know, once you see the expression on people's faces and, it's 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 worth it. It's hard to put into words. You can't get it from a paycheck. It's it's immeasurable. But we're very well received by the community, by the rescue workers, um, by the victims. More importantly, so it's something. Unless you've done it, it's hard to explain. Isn't that great, Dana Reed with Operation Barbecue Relief, Operation BBQ Relief dot org. If you want to learn more, or maybe do a good deed and make a donation. Finally today, those of us who love to pull strength from nature and sunshine and plants may be feeling a little starved this time of year. I actually put a bowl of rocks and pine cones outside my kitchen window so I could gaze on something in the natural world while I do my dishes. Jan Johnson is a landscape architect and author of Heaven is a Garden. She is a much sought after speaker, so I dialed her up to ask, what's going on with our plants in winter? Well, number one, the sun is hitting the plants and actually it is being absorbed, but it's going directly down into the roots. So all the energy now goes into the earth, which is as it should be because, you know, in the warm parts of the year, the energy comes from the earth back up into the plants. So this, if you think about it, is when they're recharging and to use modern technology. So the plants are recharging by getting all that energy put down into the roots. The energy so goes you, into the roots. Yeah, and if you think about that, if you think of it like plugging in your cell phone into a cell phone charger, right? It's kind of like the same thing. They're basically being recharged for the next growth cycle come the spring. Right. It, it, it's, a, it's kind of the yin and the yang of, uh, of plants where you have to have the, the downtime in order to have the... The big push. Right. When we're sleeping, you might say, oh my God, you're dead, you're dead. No, they're just sleeping. Same thing with plants. Sleeping, yes, but there's a lot going on. Now, I know one of your books was The Spirit in Stone and that, you know, nature to you is just another extension of human life, right? Like all of nature is talking to us. How do we relate to nature this time of year? Well, that's great. I'm so glad you brought up Spirit of Stone because in that I talk about how to use stone in your garden and walls and and walks and, you know, as stone totems or standing stones. And I also talk a little bit about how stone is the overlooked player in our garden. You know, who looks at the rocks? You know, you look at the plants. But frankly, winter especially is when the rocks are at, you know, they're the show. They're the ones that are, are still there. They're waterproof. They're, they're frostproof. They're deerproof. I mean, you think about it, it's a great thing to add to a garden. And especially in the winter when there they are, you know, they're looking great. So right now you have the stones and if they have moss on them or if there's some like little ferns or, or myrtle or pachysandra planted around them, you look wonderful right now, I yeah. just have to say. Stone, too, has energy. As a matter of fact, the Japanese say that stone, the energy in, in the stone is the purest kind of energy whereas everything else kind of goes boom. The stones are always just kind of solid, like this is there. They, they don't change. They're just there. They're enduring and resilient. And, and when we stand on rocks, we get grounded. We are, the energy goes right through our feet, especially nowadays with all of us, myself included, what do we do? We stare at screens like three quarters of our life, right? Yeah. Computer screen, TV screen, cell phone screen. We're staring at screens all the time. 
And I feel very strongly that we need to be a little bit more grounded and standing on stones or touching our hands on stones or however we connect with them really does give us a little bit of that of that energy. So ground yourself with stone and pay attention to feeding your own roots this time of year. Recharge with quiet and self-care. Thank you for shining on today. I am sending you so much love and peace and joy for the holiday and leaving you with this thought for the day from Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. I wonder if the snow loves the trees and the fields, that it kisses them so gently, and then it covers them up snug, you know, with a white quilt, and perhaps says, go to sleep, darlings, till summer comes again. See you next week. You've been listening to Shine On, the health and happiness show with Casey, an Ella's Leash production. The content of Shine On, the Health and Happiness Show is intended for general information purposes only. You can listen to previously broadcast shows online at Casey.co. That's K-A-C-E-Y dot C-O. Join Casey for another edition of Shine On, the Health and Happiness Show next Sunday morning right here on 100.7 WHUD.